Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. fact about my guest today, she truly is one of the most brilliant, hilarious, extraordinary talents working on Broadway and film and television. And I am so thrilled to welcome Jennifer Samara to the podcast. Welcome, Jennifer. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the Tony Award, four-time Drama Desk Award, three-time Drama League Award, and Lucille Lortel Award nominee, Jennifer Simard. Jennifer's Broadway credits include Company, Mean Girls, Disaster, Hello Dolly, the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and she was part of the companies of Sister Act and Shrek the Musical. Some of her film credits include The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, Wish You Were Dead, and Sisters. Some of her TV credits include Girls Five Eva, The Good Wife, Law and Order, Law and Order SVU, The King of Queens, and Younger. And she can be seen playing the role of Patsy in Ray Romano's upcoming feature film directorial debut dramedy. Welcome the glorious Jennifer Simard to my podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm such a fan of yours and I'm so honored to be here and hearing all those credits. I, I think we should add that I'm 116 years old because Jeez. I'm not sure how I got that all done. That's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. So you just had a birthday. You're 116. Um, uh-huh. You'll yep. have to tell mm-hmm. me what products you're using because girl, mm-hmm. you look good. Thank you. Unicorn I- blood. I love you in little vials. I want to, I want to inject some into me. You and like, so here's the thing of all those things. I, I just grin ear to ear when I remember, um, I, I, disaster is like the first thing I'm thinking of as I talk to you. I don't think I've ever laughed so hard. I remember getting a face cramp. Like this is a true story (laughs) watching your nun, the nundum that you exhibited in that show, um, I, I hurt myself. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm sad for and happy at the same time. But do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like I pulled yeah. a muscle in my face and <laughs> and so I enjoyed the show, but also had a pulled muscle in my face mm-hmm. the whole time mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. your performance. So I guess I want to, you know, you grew up in New Hampshire. Is that yes. a correct fact? That is a correct fact. Mm-hmm. So when, if you could talk a little bit about like who your heroes were when you were young, your comedy heroes, I think, I think everything can be learned, but not at the level that you, my darling, have, have um, put forth into the world with your brilliance 
in the comedic lane, not to mention you as an actress and you as a singer. But I want to just hone in on comedy for a second because mm-hmm. you're one of a kind. So can you talk a little bit about where, how, who, what, when comedy? Yeah. You? Well, I am one of those people who love television. And I think I learned a lot of my comedy from watching my heroines on television and in movies. And then when I was fortunate enough to attend shows, to go to to those shows. But some of them, and I'm sure I'm leaving some out, but some of them included the late, great Madeline Kahn, uh, Bernadette Peters, Angela Lansbury, Anne Bancroft, Penny Marshall. These were my teachers. And there are many others, of course, there, you know, I could go on and on, but I think like anything, you have to see it to believe it. And you either have that pull or that instinct or you don't. So whether it's what we do for a living or neuroscience, something about it speaks to you. Uh, I've just compared acting with neuroscience. I want you to take note of that. Everyone. I told you she's um, funny guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, comedy and neuroscience they're equal. Um, but I, I think you, you have that little bug, you know, that bites you, whatever your calling is. I, I hope people are lucky enough to have a calling. I think it's so difficult when you're in college and people say, okay, go pick a major, decide yeah. at 19, 20 years old. I and mean, that's yeah. quite difficult. So I was very lucky, I think, to know this is what I wanted to do from pretty early age. And, and were those you doing are some it? of my heroines. I was, and I also liked school. I have to say, I, I was not sure maybe at 14 or 15, I think it was around 16 that I decided, but uh, I, uh, and I went back to college and I studied things other, I went, excuse me, I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music, but I left because I started working. And then I went back to Hunter College around 2000 to chip away at my degree. And uh, I picked it up again during the pandemic at a university that I grew up near, um, Southern New Hampshire University. And they can, they're they one of the schools that offers accredited online courses, fully accredited, fully, you know, wonderful. And it's my goal to finish my degree in forensic psychology one day. Wow. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about like these two, I mean, you have some innate gifts um, and you seem to have an intuition for how to tell a joke and how to sing a song um, in a way that is unique and singular to you. So when you chose to go to this conservatory, obviously at that point, do you play instruments also, or were you there as a singer? You know, I was there as a singer. I studied piano as a child, but I, you know, I, I dropped it because there weren't enough hours in the day, just like I dropped softball. I found that you know, one had to pick and choose their extracurricular activities because there just wasn't enough time to do them all between theater and dance and voice and piano and sports. And so uh, I'm afraid I'm not the pianist I had started out being, but I am a singer. And so that, that is my musicality. Right. So when you we're thinking about, you know, when you're like 16 and thinking about your future. And as you just said, like the idea of having a passion, what a lucky thing to sort of have talent in the world that is your passion. Um, Mm -hmm. Was it always musical comedy that you were sort of drawn to? Mm -hmm. 
It was musical comedy, sitcoms, and film. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I also loved Shakespeare and I loved drama, but I knew I had, uh, I knew I could do comedy and I noticed that most of the comedians that I admired could also do drama, but the yeah. reverse wasn't necessarily true. So that's where, I, why I was pulled to comedy. It seemed to me that that was where I belonged. And were you doing musical comedies in high school, like growing up? Were you part of a community theater? Were you doing it? At yes, school? I was. Um, there was a drama club at school, but it most the majority of my work was at this beautiful theater called the Palace Theater in Manchester, New Hampshire. It was a beautiful vaudevillian house. It was built in 1915, uh, and it, it's as physically beautiful as any Broadway theater you'd see. So how lucky was I to have that 15 minutes from where I grew up? Yeah. You know, uh, and, and that was the first your, time I, yeah. Sorry. What about your family? Like who is in the house? Who is mm -hmm. enjoying you or doing it with you or supporting you or, mm -hmm. or not? What was sort of the vibe? Oh, yeah. So I, I grew up in a family of five. Uh, I have two older brothers, uh, mother and father, and they brought us to the aforementioned Palace Theater in 1974 to see a production of Fiddler on the Roof. And our chosen seats were the front row balcony center. And I remember sitting on my mother's coat and tugging at her shirt and saying, Mom, I don't want to be up here. I want to be down there. So again, you have to see it to believe it. I, I knew from that first experience that I wanted to do that. And, uh, you know, my family from that moment on was always extremely supportive, very uh, placed a, a very high value on education. And they were supportive while never pushing. I never had quote unquote stage parents. They never forced me to do anything I didn't want to do. They merely wanted me to be happy. Okay. Did either of your parents sing? Like where mm. another relative, was this like, what's going on? We have an alien child or was everyone kind of singing in the house? Interesting. Well, my mother could play the piano and okay. um, her, she used to love to tell the story that her father used to say, Yvette, play and mouth the words, but don't sing because she wasn't apparently the, the greatest singer. But my dad okay. could sing. Okay. My dad could sing. And we were also raised Catholic. So, you know, everyone would be singing their hearts out on Sunday with the folk choir or whatever, the folk group. Um, my Aunt Janine, my dad's sister, taught voice lessons for her vocation. She was a pianist and a singer. So, you know, I do come from a family that is musical. Oh, excuse me. My grandfather, he actually played the violin quite beautifully. And I, I believe he auditioned to play at Carnegie Hall once. I think he got, or he backed, I think he got too nervous, but, <laughs> but he was um, good enough to be able to, to have that opportunity anyway. So I do come from a musical background and, and apparently several of my uncles were vaudevillians and acrobats and, you know, all kinds of things like that. Mm-hmm. And is your family like deeply rooted in New Hampshire? Is that like generations yes. of Samards in the area or yes. like, what's your and, story in that way? And pardon me, I'm going to harken back to the last question because I yeah. feel remiss if I didn't say my 
my grandfather who I, on my mother's side, whom I never got to meet, his name was Edward Cody. And he was a drummer. He was a percussionist by trade. And he was actually head of his union in Manchester, New Hampshire. So uh, props to him. So yes to that yeah, as well. So to much creativity. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Samard, uh, you know, the Samards came from uh, Canada, a little area called La Baie Saint-Paul. And if you look in a phone book it's sort of like jones or smith up there uh, and then prior to that all the relatives you know mothers maiden names they're all all from france so france to to canada to new hampshire and uh that 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 was it yeah and did you come to new york and see plays or shows growing up yeah ever? i did i was uh I think it was my 15th or 16th birthday. My mom brought me to my aunt lived in Long Island at the time. And we saw arsenic and old lace. That was my, with Polly holiday. Uh, that was my first, uh, and Jean Stapleton. That wow. was my William Hickey was in it. Tony Roberts was in it. This was my first play that I saw. And then my, the first musical I believe I saw was um, into the woods. Stephen Sondheim, Bernadette Peters. That glorious. Mm-hmm, yes. That glorious production. Mm-hmm. Not a musical theater performer on this podcast who didn't have some version of like holding the CD in their hand or like some paraphernalia related to that show or, or seeing mm-hmm. it on PBS. So I still how- have a, the album downstairs, actually. James signed it and Bernadette signed it. Oh my God. Uh, I mean, it was pretty thrilling. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so to go from that, I mean, I think about when you talk about TV stars, you know, I don't know if All in the Family was ever on in your house growing up, but like to know Jean Stapleton as as Edith Bunker, mm-hmm. and then for you to see her in a dramatic play, um, that must have been very exciting. Yes. Well, and Arsenic on a Lace is definitely a dark comedy, right? Because they're, they're murdering sisters, I believe. Uh, But, um, but she, I, I always appreciated her. I appreciate on the family more as an adult. I have to be honest with you. It scared me as a child because Archie was yelling all the time. Mm -hmm. And I was a little young to understand the humor behind the yelling. It just scared me, you know, because he was very, Uh, very angry and yeah. I thought he was rather rather mean to her so I uh, I appreciated her in Arsenic and Old Lace and by at that time of course I was a teenager so I understood uh, that it wasn't real but as right. a little girl I I'm not sure how well versed I was in her brilliance on All in the Family because I would not watch it too too often it wasn't yeah. for you yeah yeah correct correct so when you get into the conservatory, and you mentioned that you left, was that mm-hmm. a big discussion in your family? Like, wait, mm-hmm. are you going to finish this? Or were they like, absolutely go work? It was a big discussion. I, it, you know, it wasn't, it's a wonderful school. I'm proud that I went, but I don't know about you and your listeners, but I really do listen to my gut. And when it is when something's wrong, I can really feel it. And something wasn't right. It just wasn't the right fit for me. And I knew it. And I I think I was quite depressed at the time. And uh, I had to make a change. It wasn't, it was, a you know, it was a lot of money for it not to be right. 
you know, uh, and by, you know, college in general, you know, I don't, when I say a lot of money, I don't want to diss the Boston Conservatory who is now paired with Berkeley, I believe. And it was an excellent school. Right. And it was not the right time for me to be there. Yeah. So I, so I left. It's, um, I, I can't skip over all of the credits that I read, but it is really deeply felt by me that the first musical you saw was a Sondheim musical yeah. and that mm-hmm. most recently of all the things you've been sort of lauded for um company was was just this unbelievable experience for those who got to see it and i imagine for you who got to be in it and such a full mm-hmm. circle mm-hmm. event so i do want to spend some time there and then we can skip around and go back and forth because mm-hmm. um the story of many shows that sort of started to go and then COVID happened and then would they come back and not come back? Um, and the Sondheim of it all, um, his influence, I'm sure on you as a, as just a sheer lover and appreciator of him before you even knew you'd spend your adult career knowing him. Um, Mm -hmm. I would love to just kind of deep dive because the listeners are going to demand that we spend time in the world of company. So yeah, Sure. My understanding of it in knowing you a little and sort of deep diving is you were still in Mean Girls at the time that you were auditioning for Company. Correct. Yes. And I think people might even be surprised to know that Jennifer Samard, their hero, even had to audition, that that's something you still have to do for certain things. Maybe not mm-hmm. anymore, but can you just take us through that experience? Yeah. Well, you know, this creative team, uh, you know, I think being from London, they weren't sure of who I was. And it was my understanding that most everyone auditioned um, and other than Patty. And I think that we, uh, some of us started auditioning the summer of 2019. And uh, I was so happily ensconced in Mean Girls. It was probably the best J-O-B job I've ever had because it was just enough funny without being such a heavy lift that you couldn't have a life, you know? And uh, it was just a lovely job. And I had hoped to stay there for a very long time. So I took this audition because I saw Warhorse and I was very aware of who Marion Elliott was and is. And I thought, well, and of course, <laughs> Stephen Sondheim. So I said, well, I have to take this audition if for nothing else to get in the room. And I really do subscribe to some advice that I saw Brian Cranston give. You can find it on a YouTube video. I think it's audition advice and I'm going to paraphrase, but he says something to the effect that most, that most people will go in or he went in looking for a job as opposed to doing what actors do, which is act. That's your job. And so my, his best advice was to go in, do your thing, do what you do and then forget about it. Uh, because I think his point is, you know, you really do tend to get in your own way if you're concentrating on the wrong thing. And I remember doing Sarah uh, coming up with what I, how I saw her at the audition. And I think I did a backward shoulder roll at one point and it didn't end up in the show because of the set, because it was quite a small, you know, platform. Um, but they really enjoyed that. But I, and then they threw other things at me and I do come from an improv improv background. So it was, I was pretty relaxed because I also never thought I stood a chance (laughs) at actually getting it. 
So I, I, I really, I had a great job. I felt like I had nothing to lose and I really wanted to create in front of this woman who I really do respect and to my shock and awe, they liked it and wanted it. And so the rest sort of is history. And had you, uh, interfaced with Stephen Sondheim before the show in your career? Yes. I was lucky enough to be part of a reading of what they were, uh, I hope I pronounced it right. The Buñuel, the Buñuel project, um, his last musical, I think it's changed titles since then. And, uh, and that was in the fall of 2016. And that was a wonderful experience. And, uh, I was really grateful that he got to see not not only the preview in 2020, but he came on November 15th to the subsequent first preview, first preview 2.0 in the fall of 2021. And um, he said some things I'll never forget to me. And it's really nice to know that one of your heroes sees you and admires your work. You know, I, that's a gift I'll never be able to get over. And I'm really grateful for yeah, I, I can only imagine. I got to be there at the opening night. Um, and it was obviously Stephen had passed at that point. Yeah. She was just so shocking. And yeah, um, the, the feeling of that in the room. But that was like one of the most electric, exciting openings mm-hmm. I've ever been to. Like it, it was just sort of extraordinary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I also wanted to just take a moment and, you know, particularly around company where you, your performance, the show got so much attention and also like not just theater centric um, people writing about it, but like you were in People magazine talking mm-hmm. about sort of really openly and and with such generosity body issues mm-hmm. and and being so front and center with your truth in a People mm-hmm. article, right? Like, I don't know if, if it yeah. was a very long interview and it got truncated into, you know, a few paragraphs, but I want to just talk a little bit um, about your decision to be really transparent in that way with this platform that you have mm-hmm. um, and how it it feels to sort of just share your truth uh, and our truths change all the time, but sort of around that yeah. in your personal journey. Yeah, I well, I did a, a cabaret show a couple of years ago called Stigma about trying to destigmatize issues such as body image, such as anxiety, depression, you name it, several things, beauty standards, uh, through rock and roll, through song, something completely different from how people normally view me. Um, because we all contain multitudes and it was as an, as an artist. And I like that word because that is what we are. Um, it's, it's not always, it's not always just comedy that inspires me. And I it's what I wanted to say at the time, you know, that's the, the quote unquote painting I wanted to put out there. And I was inspired to it's, it's, and I got a lot of people who went to therapy themselves after seeing that show. And so that was a big gift for me. 
people who would write me uh, about things they were going through. And it's, it's a journey that never ends, you know, and sometimes I, I'd say to myself, oh, I don't have to share everything. And I haven't. Uh, but I remember wanting to in that moment. And playing the role of Sarah, I found to be a big responsibility because it's a script that was written in 6970 earlier, if you think about the sketches it came from. Right. And there's a lot of a lot of humor based on the fact that she's eating and trying not to eat. And, you know, since it was originally done, uh, and I think recently there's been a lot of pushback and rightly so about, you know, skinny actors in a fat suit, let's say, or or um, you know, what is what is acceptable as far as size and what isn't. And, you know, I can't possibly physically represent every woman as far as my size goes, but what I can represent from experience is this eating disorder and how my weight has always been an issue, you know, um, and that how to, how to some people I may look thin and other people I may look heavy, but what they didn't know was the, the pain and the journey regarding that and how I thought about that a lot in the playing of this role. And frankly, the responsibility I had, I, at least I hoped to represent women and the pain that not just women, but I'll, you know, however, whomever and however one identifies, anyone who identifies with body image and an eating disorder. And that I could relate to. I do believe the best humor comes through pain, which is something I really tried to bring to that role, which is why when I wanted those GD brownies so much, it was kind of, to me, it was funny because it was so based in pain of how much I wanted them, a pain that people can relate to. So it's not just simply, oh, it's just a brownie. No, it's not just that. And, and how, um, physically like bearing my stomach on stage and really sticking it out there. And, you know, in an, in an industry that's so consumed with image, I, I wanted to reclaim that for myself and not be afraid to just kind of literally let it all hang out. Was that, um, was that something that you thought about at home when you were working on the script? Was that a moment mm-hmm. that was came out of a moment in rehearsal? Yeah, I think I thought about it at home and brought it into rehearsal one day. And it first made an appearance in 2020 before the pandemic. And it, mm-hmm. it was right, gosh, it was right at the very end. Or maybe, let me think about this. It, it might've just, oh, I think I, no, I think I wasn't, forgive me, that's wrong. I was inspired on stage in the moment in a and performance, I think it was dress rehearsal or something, wow. or the first preview, pre-COVID, um, pre-COVID, and okay. I think maybe because we hadn't. Oh no! Okay, can you can we start this answer over? Okay, so I was in my dressing room pre-COVID, and I had thought about that moment, and I remember talking to Marianne. I said, "Hey, I might want to try some things," and I and I told that to Katrina too. I might want to try some things in that moment if that's okay to warn them essentially. Uh, but I wasn't sure exactly what it would be. And, and, and we did it. And then of course the shutdown was right after that. And at the time 
I'm not sure Marianne was particularly sold on it. And part of that was my own commitment to the moment, you know, when you don't, maybe don't know what something is yet. Can you just describe for uh-huh. listeners who didn't have the great fortune of seeing the show, the moment yeah. we're setting up and talking about? Oh gosh. Yeah. Let me see if I remember. Um, you're going to have to give me a second here, Alana, because I'm trying to remember the setup. I don't remember the setup now. Oh my God. But that's okay. Just sort of what yeah. happens in the scene. Yeah. Oh, I know what it was. So, um, so Bobby, um, I offer, here we go. So I I offer Bobby uh, a brownie in this moment on stage. And she's like, basically she rejects it. Like, no, I couldn't possibly. And I'm like, oh yeah. You know, like you skinny thing, just look at you. There's nothing to you bones, your skin and bones. So I'm, I'm sort of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm obviously I'm, having fun with my girlfriend harry's over mix and drinks it's just the two of us and when we readdressed this issue back in 2021 i remember fighting for it for a lot of the reasons i just told you i said i said i think it's really important for women out there to see me do this yeah yeah i said i think it's really important and i said and the way i see it is what what i've heard a lot of men and women say over the years is that women in a lot men in a locker room can't hold a candle to women in a locker room and how just how much we they'd be surprised if they knew how raunchily we talked how free we were with our bodies and our and noises our body makes and that kind of thing i said and in this moment i would really love us to explore the relationship i have with our female bobby and um our familiarity and our comfort level with one another and how I'm, I'm jabbing her with my, by being self-effacing with myself. That's right. And, and, and that it is kind of like, oh yeah, you think you're skinny. Yeah. Like skinny like this. So I lift my shirt and I smack my belly real loud. And then, and then, uh, yes, I start (laughs) talking with my, my belly button as if it's a mouth. So it's sort of like a donut hole, right? It looks like a giant bagel. My stomach looked like a bagel at one point. And, uh, and then of course, Katrina would laugh and that gave the audience permission to laugh. And, you know, it's physical comedy, you know, it's not, you know, uh, but even though it's physical comedy, there was a lot of brain work that went in behind it for us to figure it out. So it wasn't cheap. So, you know, uh, and it was, um, you know, it was very, uh, I th- again, I think it was really important. And was it fun? Yes. Because it was so uh, in your face to everyone and really fresh out of F-U-C-K-S's, right? You know, it's very freeing to not give a fuck. And um, it was very freeing. Well, I can only imagine what it was. I mean, really, from the minute your Sarah presented herself, I mean, the amount of love and joy and audible response to your performance. Mm. I can imagine that that must've been incredibly gratifying to just to land it, right? Like you landed the jump. Well, correctly, correct. Because you don't know, you don't know if it's going to work until you break that fourth wall and have the final actor with you, which is the audience. Yeah. So you can think it's going to work and years of experience kind of help you figure out what's going to work or not work or land or not land, but you still never know. Well, it was unbelievable. 
I mean, that moment, yes, but the whole performance was really, truly just, I mean, thank you for one of the greatest night of my life in the theater as an audience, actually multiple times. I mean, seeing you and Dolly, all of it. Um, Jennifer, you're just, you're just so brilliant. And also just the kindest, kindest, big hearted person. And we're just so lucky. Um, to have you, you know, we're selfishly, we think of you in the Broadway community as our own, but now like people who don't get to come to Broadway, get to see you on film and on television mm-hmm. and they get to know you that way. And what a great thing that now your image and your talent can be, you know, just shared globally in that way. Um, mm-hmm. Before I let you go, cause mm-hmm. I know you have so much going on. Is there a little known fact about you that you can share? that people might not know about. Okay. Yeah. So after does it have to be theater related? Cause no. Okay. No. All right. So, um, here's a little known fact. Uh, I have a couple of them, but here's one. So after big storms, particularly storms that are windy, when I get a chance, I like to go to cemeteries and make upright all the flower vases that have tipped over in front of people's gravestones. Gives me pleasure. You are the greatest human on planet earth. (laughs) Oh no, you are. Oh, thank Um, you. Jennifer, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast today. What an honor to have you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. Little known fact, now you can watch hours and hours of my interviews with your favorite artists as they talk about the art they love to make on YouTube. That's right. I have a YouTube channel. It's called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Subscribe and enjoy. Little Known Fact, if you want to donate to the podcast, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Have a great day. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.